Now, notice the difference in the Hebrew. A man's thing shall not be upon a woman, or a woman's clothes upon a man. There's a difference there. Commentators say that things here means utensils or tools or beauty. The purpose of the law, they say, and I quote, is to maintain the sanctity of that distinction of affection which was established by the creation of man and woman, and in relation to which Israel was not sent. Every violation of wiping out of this distinction was unnatural, and therefore an abomination in the sight of God. Unquote. W. L. Alexander, another one of the great stars of a century ago, pointed out that, to be translated, that which pertains to a man, or the things that pertain to a man, or, more literally, the apparatus of a man. In other words, it means not merely clothing, but implements, tools, weapons, utensils, and duties. John Barton, another scholar of over a century ago, pointed out that this law forbids the wife to rule her husband, and it forbids every perversion of the sexes from their God-given place. That's a very interesting meaning up here. What is the meaning with respect to the woman? It is grabbing for the reality of the power and the function of the man. So the woman's defense of this law is assuming the power and the duty as well as the form of the man's life. But with a man, it is the application of the form, and it's a surrender, he puts on a woman's dress as a sign of his weakness and surrender. Now let us turn from the law for a time to the present situation with respect to this law. And I shall give you now the analysis of a sociologist and anthropologist, Winnick, who, without having any fiction perspective whatsoever, and are being concerned with one way or another, is simply reporting on the contemporary tendency. According to Dr. Winnick, today we see the progressive desexualization of people. The goal, he says, is the bland man. The neutral creation, the blurring of the distinction between male and female. It has gone so far that in 1964, the American Civil Liberties Union, for the first time in the history of this country, challenged the law against transvestite practices, that is, for a woman, for a man to appear in public in women's clothing. Claimed that it was an infringement of the civil liberties of the man. <laughs> Moreover, as Dr. Winnick has pointed out, transvestism on the part of men, that is, men wearing women's clothes to play a role, is becoming increasingly common on the stage and also the screen in movies and on in television. In London, unisexual clothes has become a style, and to a degree also they've become a style in 
as a result, there is a militant war against any difference. The bland and neutral man is the goal. Henry Miller, of course, has said, and I cited this before, that the world society must be a great revolution. A revolution which will wipe away all civilization, all knowledge of reading and writing, books, everything, disappears for 200 years, during which time nothing but total anarchy and ruin will prevail. So that all knowledge of our history and civilization will disappear. Every kind of perversion will be so general that at the end of that time, men will scarcely know that they are men, and women will scarcely know that they are women. And then, he says, paradise will begin. Because it will be beyond God, it will be a world of man making without God and his That is, of course, is what is behind the steady violation of this law. And we can see in terms of these commentators who have studied very carefully the significance of the Hebrew text. The meaning of the law has broader references than clothing. The clothing reference is specific with respect to men in women's dress. With reference to women, it refers to broader context. The law strikes general neutralization of the sexes and the confusion of their roles. It strikes at the man's abdication of his responsibility and of the woman's presumption in assuming what is not her. It certainly, therefore, is a law that legislates against the idea of women elders and against the idea of women ministers. It certainly legislates against the idea of men being irresponsible, because the idea of being a man is to bear the responsibility in a situation. I recall some years ago, an elder who despised David, and he said that David was a repulsive claimed to be a fundamentalist man, but he said David was such a repulsive figure. Look at the sins he committed. It is true David did commit murder and adultery. It is true David sinned with respect to his children. It is true that you could possibly find out some other fault in David. But the thing that makes David so great a man and so close to God is that David was in all things a responsible man. A responsible man. We know of David's sins of David's lips. Against thee, the only life sins and done that with the people of God's life. And this elder who made this charge about David had never been caught in a committing any wrong in his life. He was the man of the two. Clearly, in God's eyes, he David. This law insists on a strict line of division between male and female as he said, and as God ordained. 
take up an offering? Coin in all history, the Maria Theresa Collar is her coin. 
uh, actually mended in her honor by her son in her last days. Maria Theresa came to the throne of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire when all of the things fall apart. And here she was, just a little girl. And yet she was thoroughly womanly, remarkably so. She was, by right, the empress of the Holy Roman Empire as well as of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. She never took the title. She never did. She said, the title belongs to a man. Let my son have it when he comes to the throne. But it's not uh, right for a woman to pretend to that title. She's always had around her uh, level-headed men as counselors. She always did the final strike. But at all times, she made every man around her know that she was speaking to his opinions with his defense. And she was not presuming that she knew it all. As a result, she built up a loyalty that is unparalleled in history. Everyone loved her. They recognized the godly character of the woman. Her very, very real humility. And the fact that she understood uh, the details of things, the nuances of things. So she became quite a remarkable ruler. Now, there are differences between men and women. Women are personal, which is their race. This is why they can cope with family situations and personal things. Because they are interested in the very personal thing and they view every problem from the personal perspective. What's it doing to me or to my husband or to my children? They put it in personal terms. Whereas what does a man do? He tries to put it in abstract terms. Now let's look at this objectively. That's his attitude. Well, you see, this is why they need each other, and this is why you cannot read history properly, except in terms of male and female, and this is why in a godly society, the woman will have a very important role to play, because the balance of men become too impersonal. They're trying to abstract everything. But, uh, not the woman. Now, uh, it's not surprising that most sociologists are men, and the women who do are priests. Because what does a sociologist do? He tries to depersonalize everything. If his child is misbehaving or something, he's trying to find abstract, objective reasons for all of this. What does the woman do? She wails it. Because she is out of line. She's not abstract, so it's Now, I'm Stressing the point here, but this is the difference between male and female. One is personal, the other tends to be abstract in general. And both are needed in the world. Yes. Um, 
good question. The older division, the answer was emphatically no. The women, if they were afraid, had a separate midweek Bible study led by one of the women. Nowadays, not much attention is paid to that. And I think it would be better to get back to the older tradition uh, because I believe it's more godly. Then I noticed this, that where women are leading in prayer and the prayer meetings, the men tend to drop back. So that uh, if there's a prayer meeting, uh, there will be a couple of women praying for every man who prays. In other words, where women move in to do something, the men simply tend to pull back. So it is, it's unscriptural. First of all, and secondly, the attempt to destroy the masculine leadership. The men should lead in prayer, yes. Yes. I'd like to speak a moment about the education of the man. I see this. My practice, and I see it more and more frequently all the time from the very disturbing aspects and my personal experience with men and women. And uh, you always have to remember that nature pours the vacuum, and when the man agitates, the woman steps in. And uh, of course, we have to be able to point out that particularly an ungodly tradition, and certainly not sexual. And uh, I noticed that, that um, this has been a special prominence for the last few years. Before that, when I was first in practice, I didn't see too much of it. And now I'm seeing more and more and more of it. And it's very disturbing because the men the men seem to be advocating their responsibility as head of the household. And uh, a lot of the problems that we see, that I see in relation to the children, is because the husband has advocated his responsibility, and I want to go on record and say that uh, I see this very, very frequently in my own practice. It's disturbing, and also it certainly uh, is uh, exactly what Rugby's been speaking about, so be it in that. Yes.
would be in terms of assuming a masculine role such as uh, police work, taking over uh, fighting as in wartime, out and out, fully masculine work. I don't mean women uh, were helping in an assistant position as matron uh, or doing the feminine side or juvenile work with police. But it does not permit the kind of things that the uh, Soviet Union has done, for example, actually using women on the fighting line and so on, definitely. But it doesn't prevent a woman from having weapons and using them in cases of necessity. Remember one of the women who's very much praised, uh, who put a tent bag through Sisera's head. And if you'll go back to the words of praise that are used concerning her, you'll find that they are echoed with respect to the Virgin Mary and the New Testament. Very interesting echo, yes. No, that's not true, because it can be traced back to Africa and the tribal culture there. And if anything, the very small amount of masculine responsibility you find among Negroes you do find as a product of slavery, where there was some order and discipline imposed by man. The tribal culture in Africa uh, gave the man no function except to uh, hunt and do battle. That was all. All the work was the woman, all the responsibility was the woman. The man was nothing but a playboy, as it were, uh, when there wasn't war. And if it was an agricultural tribe, even his hunting was somewhat limited. So that the man did not have any responsibility. Now, this you find in other cultures as well. But among the African cultures, you find it to be actually Greek. But you found this also among the American Indians. I spent eight and a half years among the American Indians. And the thing that was characteristic of them was to see. Indian women were far more responsible than the Indian men. Far more responsible. And the Indian men are mostly alcoholics. Extremely high ratio of alcoholism. Overwhelmed. Over far, far more than the number of Indian women who are alcoholics is not too high. And the reason is that from very early years as a part of the tribal background, they are the responsible party. And you see, responsibility is a total thing. If you're a responsible man in uh, most of your life, it carries over into how you handle it. And because the Indian man is not responsible, he uh, is very prone to alcoholism. Now, this question was asked this morning, and then a woman said, yes, but when I was in Arizona, I saw this Indian uh, go into an ice cream parlor and get an ice cream cone while his wife sat outside. And 
and uh, didn't get one. And I said, yes, I can believe that, but I'll tell you something more. The chance for he gave him the money and sent him in to treat himself. Yeah. <laughs> because he is the biggest thief he has. <laughs> and uh, they uh, indulge their manner, and they, the men are very often abusive and all, and beat them up, but the woman often provides them with a good deal of money for their drinking and uh, for their ice cream cone and so on. <laughs> so that doesn't uh, get with that masculine authority that he had an ice cream cone. He did that. Yes. It is over and over again used so in scripture. And as a matter of fact, the old Puritan tradition was not only to call fellow members of brother so and so and sister so and so, but also uh, the ministers were called fathers. This is not Catholic usage. It's modern among the Catholics. After the Civil War, as I pointed out some months ago, somehow this twist came around. The Catholic term for a priest was Mister, like Don Camillo, Don Pablo, Don. This is the way they address the priest. But the Protestants called the Mister. Yes. But the Protestants always spoke of the minister as father, and the little kids would speak of the older men as uh, Father Jones, any older man. So that, uh, or uh, if they were quite familiar, family friends, for example, uh, Rand would be addressed by uh, the other youngsters in the group as Father Rand. So that all the men, by children, would be called father, and the adults. You'll find this in the uh, American Protestant and Puritan tradition up to the Civil War, and it began to die out after the Civil War, and somehow the Roman Catholic and Protestant custom switched. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. No father, of this verse 
In Matthew, where it says, Call no man father to God only, he says, This does not refer to the usage in the church by brethren in the Lord who are one family. So, Calvin uh, specifically favored it. Now, this came as a shock to me when I ran across Calvin a while back, so I started to study up on this. So I uh, changed my perspective here because I realized Calvin was right to this book. I, I don't think I feel comfortable, frankly. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Russian Orthodox faith and the Greek Orthodox. Yes. The Russian Orthodox faith and the Greek Orthodox. Uh, 
which is in Constantinople, is not named after someone uh, named Sophia, but after uh, wisdom. Sophia means wisdom, so it's the church of holy wisdom. That's the literal translation. So uh, this is the deceptive thing. Eastern Orthodoxy does have churches named after things, but a lot of the names have reference to uh, doctrine. The Church of the Holy Wisdom, the Church of Kenosis, apparently. Yes. Yes, freedom 
in modern philosophy, especially in Santa means the freedom from God to be your own God. And this is why when you come to Sartre, Sartre and he tries to develop this, finds all right, uh, abolish God. My freedom is to be my own God. But now I've abolished all principles definitions because I've abolished means, since all means is derived from God. So how can I be free since I'm in a given world? You try to be a new man. But you still can't escape meaning as it's somehow there. So, uh, the most logical of these, as you said, oh, the artist, uh, Marcel Duchamp, who painted the famous uh, new descending the staircase for the armory show before World War I. And it's still alive. Marcel Duchamp was so determined to abolish God that he determined he had to get rid of the whole world of God and its meaning. So he said, I'm going to create a language in which nothing will have meaning because meaning ultimately has reference to God. So he worked on it for years, but he found out that he could only use this language once and nobody could then communicate with him because no one would understand it because then you would have to establish a common bond and say there has to be something outside of myself which is I am not God. I'm not totally independent. And of course, Sartre uh, includes this great work, Being and Nothingness, in the next to the last chapter. After going through all of this, now man has to be a own God. Well, how is he going to be God? Well, it's impossible because there's always somebody else in the world. You have to have some kind of communication with them and it qualifies it all. So, he concludes, man is a useful task.